All right. Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Are we good? Are we feeling grateful and thankful after everything Brock shared? Yeah, we ought to. Man, look at that weather outside. It is not frightful. It is beautiful. And let me tell you, I'm so grateful for it, especially after last year. Last year with all that rain, I like the kind of rain we're getting this year. It happens while you sleep, right? And then you get your full day. You get the sun out. It's the perfect kind of rain. And this is the perfect time to just take a snapshot of the weather and send it to anyone who fled California during COVID and remind them of what they're missing. Now, now that would be in violation of everything that I said last week, promoting envy, right? That's where we were in Ecclesiastes 4, and we were being called into a life of community and interdependence rather than that hell on earth that we make of the world when we promote envy and when we live in isolation from each other. I said, we have this choice that we can make to say to ourselves, man, I got this. I got this. I got life. I I can handle it. But when we say that, we're really lying to ourselves. We don't got this. We're hardwired for interdependence. And we cannot fulfill what God plans for us. We cannot thrive unless we come together, unless we become that cord of many strands by integrating our lives with the lives of other people. Now, as we turn the page to chapter 5, we're going to find that those Boasts of self-reliance that we talked about last week aren't the only lies that we're prone to tell, but that it's quite common for our mouth to run ahead of our heart and say things of no significance, right? We're searching for significance. We're searching for things of substance. We find that many times our mouth can run ahead of our heart and say things that are devoid and empty of real meaning. So let's turn there to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. One of the ushers will pass one to you. We're going to see what the teacher has to say about what we say this morning here in chapter 5. Let's read, starting in verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven, and you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares, and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin, and do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless, therefore fear God. Let's pause there this morning. Verse 1, the teacher invites us to watch our steps as we enter the house of God. You know, where are we often looking when we're walking? We're often looking ahead. We're looking to where we're going, right? He says, don't just look where you're going. Look how you're going. Watch your steps. Guard your steps. He means (laughs) self-evaluate. Consider yourself. And this is what happens. This is what we're prompted to do when we become aware that we're in God's presence. There is a natural effect upon us to begin to self-evaluate, to begin to be aware of ourselves when we enter into the presence of God. It's similar to a degree to the effect of having your boss walk in the room. 
kind of makes you aware of yourself. I remember being 16 years old, working on church maintenance. The church I was attending at the time, it was a very large church, so they gave me this task. They said, uh, we want you to paint the children's buildings. And yes, that's with an S. There were buildings and buildings for all the children, the hundreds of children that would gather in this community. And so they handed me the white paint, and there I am in, you know, the first building, and it's just endless hallways, and I'm by myself, and it's dark, and I have all day. And, you know, I'm 16 years old, so I'm more or less motivated, more on the less motivated side of things. You know, let's just say being there all day long by myself, no one watching me, the paint was drying faster than I was putting it on the walls. That's, that's essentially how I was working. But I'll tell you what, the second I heard that little golf cart pull up to the building with my boss in it, you know, and those brakes that never get service going, and then the click of the e-brake, click, 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 click. I painted like I was Michelangelo, right? I painted with more intensity than you've ever seen anyone paint because I had to make up for all the time I wasn't painting in that three seconds before they're going to walk through the door. What happened is the presence of my boss that made me aware of myself. I began to scrutinize myself in those moments about what I was doing and who I was. I wasn't on autopilot any longer. So guard your steps, the teacher says. Watch how you're walking. Take stock of yourself when you go to gather for worship. God is in the room. God is present among us right now. So take stock and prepare. Prepare, he says in the second half of verse 1, to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who say so many things they don't even know. They don't even pause long enough to realize that they're just wasting their breath. So it's really interesting. As much as the teacher invited us last week into community and interdependence, and it was like the extrovert anthem, and all you extroverts were feeling liberated and, you know, nudging the introvert next to you, look, you need me, right? You didn't think you did, but now you need me, right? That Now this week, that's in balance a little bit because he's calling forth this internal quiet, this posture of introspection. Fact is, many people today can't hear God when they try to listen. People come to me and say, how do you hear from God? How can you hear God? For a lot of people, it's no surprise that they can't hear God because they can't even hear themselves. I've said that before, like... If you can't even hear yourself, how do you think you're going to hear God? There's so much noise, external noise, there's so much internal chatter. Their heart is like this pond that's just like stirred up. You know, you can't see your reflection in it any longer. And when we quiet ourselves before God, He has the power to just calm the waters so that we can actually view ourselves in the reflection for what it is. So check yourself, He says. Go listen. Listen. I was thinking, where do we go to listen? In what setting, you know, do you find yourself where you actually intentionally, you went out of your way to listen? Well, when you go to a concert. When you go to a concert, there's an intentionality, there's a desire, there's a plan that's made. You actually go to a place and you're leaning in, not to do anything, but to absorb, to receive the noise, to receive the sound, right? You know, that's going to listen. That's the same thing that God is inviting us into. He's saying, when you come into the gathering of my people, I want you to go to absorb. You know, lean in and hear what's being said. You're not listening at 
for my voice. You know, what, what does it matter what Andrew says? It only matters if it's something that's based on the Word of God. It's what God is saying and using me as an instrument to say. You're coming in here listening for God's voice. When, when you wake up in the morning and you open the Bible or you do so at night and you pull out your journal and you pull out your pen, you're going into that setting going, I'm going to the concert, your concert, God. I'm here I'm here to absorb and to listen to what you have to say. Verse 2 says, it's the fool who approaches God thinking, they're the one on the stage. They're hasty with their words and quick to the trigger in their heart before God. They make all sorts of claims, right? They make all these vows and they swear up and down all these spiritual promises of what they're going to do, thinking God appreciates all their flowery overtures. Say less. That's essentially what he says in verse 3. He goes, just quit talking so much. Remember the nature of the relationship between you and God. You're on earth, and he's in heaven, so let your words be few. Now, this isn't meant to evoke a feeling like, hey, I, I, I should be really afraid of God. I should be scared of God. No, I think about it like my role as a father to my children. You know, with my children, I want to be very approachable. I want to be very familiar with my children. I, I never want them to think they can't come to me and they should be scared of me. I want them to always come to me. I want to convey to them that I love them with my whole being, wholeheartedly, always come to me. But at the same time, I also want them to know I am the authority. I am the standard setter. So as much as you're familiar with me, as much as you come to me all the time and you know my love for you, at the same time, I want you to maintain a respect for me. And when we go before God, we're to respect the nature of the relationship. Consider we are just a vapor. We are just a breath. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes says. And here we are multiplying our words on top of our words, speaking to the eternal one whose few words spoke the universe into existence. It's the marvel of the gospel that this God has invited us into friendship and familiarity through the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross. But when we come together with him, let's allow him to lead the conversation. That's what's being said here. And that's not just demanded because of the nature of the relationship that he's in heaven and we're on earth, so we should let our words be few. But that is also demanded because there is a correlation that exists between our words and our character. He says, just as many dreams are an indication of a lot of cares in your heart, a lot of things going on in that pond is getting stirred up, so are many words a pretty reliable indicator of someone who's a fool. A lot of words is a pretty reliable indicator of a moron. That's what he says here. And he says many things like this throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 6, verse 11. The more words, he says, the less meaning it's like when there's a lot of flies in my backyard. It's an indicator that the side yard needs cleaning. See, I've got a golden doodle, Dr. Cosington, PhD. It's not an official doctorate, but honorary in our house. When the flies are in the backyard, that is an indicator that some work needs to be done to clean up, right, of the leftovers. And in the same way, you know, a lot of flies, very clear indication of something in my household, a lot of words an indication you've got some cleanup to do there with someone's character, less meaning. 
chapter 10, verse 12. Words from the mouth of the wise are gracious, meaning they're elegant, they're pleasant. You want to listen to a wise person talk, but fools are consumed by their own lips. Meaning, you want to listen to the words of the wise, but fools just love listening to themselves. At the beginning, their words are folly. At the end, they are wicked madness, and fools multiply words. The longer they talk, the worse it gets. And it's not just the number of our words we need to pay attention to, but our volume in chapter 9, verse 17. The quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. So we can sometimes say more by saying less. And when we say things of substance, of significance, we can actually dial back the game. We can turn down the volume a little bit. And I think we're finding there's a real art to our speech that's being identified here in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I don't know how often we guard our steps and watch our walk and pause and consider how we're going about life and how we're using this musical instrument that is this gift that God has given to each of us. I don't think we pause and think, how am I playing this instrument on a daily basis? You know, but that's what God is asking us to do. I, I hear it in, you know, when people are talking about music, when people are talking about art, they say music is as much the notes you do play as those you don't play. Or art is as much the brush strokes you add to the, the painting as much as those you leave out. And I'm comforted by that because that's why I'm such a good musician and artist. Because of all the things I leave out, I don't do any of it. But that's not the whole picture, right? It, it is what you add to the painting and what you do say and, you know, the music you do play as much as what you don't. And I know that we know this point is proven in practice because I think for many of us, we understand the power of our words and the responsibility that we have with our words to, to speak words that build up and encourage. But when we look back at our own lives and our own lifetimes, I think we can agree many of us would have been just as encouraged by things people could have left unsaid. Am I right? We would have been just as encouraged by things people could have left unsaid. So as much as we are what we say, we are also what we don't say. Now, it's a little ironic for a guy who wrote and said a lot in Ecclesiastes. We have a decidedly negative view of speech here, don't we? And let's be real, he's not against all talk. Like I said, I think he's simply putting us in check because he knows which way human beings are inclined. Even if we don't consider ourselves the inheritors of the gift of gab, like some of you would openly admit, we're all tempted to go further in our claims before God than with our follow-through. Am I right? We are tempted to go further in our claims before God than with our follow-through. That's what the last verse illustrates through this Old Testament practice of submitting vows to God at the temple. If you want the provisions for how this tradition was worked out, it's in Leviticus chapter 27. But let me summarize it this way. An individual would go to the temple and have a designated gift recorded that they're submitting before God. It's a certain amount of money certain amount of animals, certain value of land, and they would have it recorded at the temple in anticipation of the blessing or future provision of God. And then when God would make good on his side and bring that blessing and provision, then it was on the offerer who made the commitment to actually follow through on the gift. Now, no doubt there was a habit on the part of many worshipers to promise big and come up short on the delivery. That's what verse 6 is all about. 
We have an example of someone whose mouth, whose vows and promises led them into sin and wrongdoing. Apparently, the guy had wagered something before God at the temple, and it got recorded. But when success came to him, he started to go back on the deal. He started to weasel his way out of that commitment through some powerful rationalizations. You know, I kind of imagine it this way, that he goes back to the temple and he goes, okay, I got my gift. And they're like, hey, that's a lot less than you said that you were going to give. And he goes, oh, what are you saying here? Let me, let me see that paperwork. Let me, let me just, you know, let's go through the paperwork. Oh, look at this. The temple messenger must have written it down wrong. You know, he must have added an extra zero at the end of that number that I gave him. How dare he do that? You know, I know myself, and I know I'd never be that generous. That doesn't sound like something I'd ever do. But, you know, here we have the power of the human heart on display. Like, we are incredible lawyers. We are incredible lawyers. We can argue our way out of our devotion just as fast as we argued our way into our devotion. Better it would have been, as in verse 5, to just shut up and never made a vow in the first place. That's what the teacher's basically saying. What are you doing? It would be better if you just didn't even open your mouth. Do what you said you're going to do. Because as it says in verse 7, much dreaming and many words are meaningless. They're vapor. The conclusion is fear God. It's like you might be able to fool the temple messenger or another human being, but you can't fool God. Remember chapter 3, verse 15, he calls the past to account. So he knows exactly what vow was made at the temple, and he watched the guy weasel his way out of it so convincingly that the guy even believed his own lie at the end, but it's all meaningless in the end. It's all just breath, a lot of religious activity, but no sacrifice, no substance. And we can all fall into that same error. Religion can be turned into a bunch of words and cycles of vows made and vows broken endlessly. It reminds me of planning meetings. If you've ever been a part of an organization that had planning meetings, oh, there's so many meetings to plan things in organizations. It doesn't matter, you know, maybe you're in government. Oh. Amount of meetings that go on in government. It doesn't matter if you're in the corporate world. It doesn't matter if you work in a church. My gosh, the amount of meetings, meetings, meetings that people have about doing something. Let's think through how we're going to do something. And then you got the meeting before the meeting. You got the meeting to plan the meeting, to plan the thing you're going to do. And you have multiple departments that need to have their meeting before you have the planning meeting for the planning meeting. And then you finally go and do something. There are whole people whose jobs on the organizational chart are substantiated by their ability to plan meetings and bring people together. And there's so much activity. You know, you're coming and going, and you know, we ran out of time. It went three hours. We need another meeting to finish out this meeting that we're having before the thing happens. And then when the thing finally happens, what do you do on the other side? You have to have a meeting to evaluate the thing. And there's just so much stuff going on and so much noise and nothing's even happening. And that's exactly what's going on here with this guy in his spiritual life. 
There's a lot of spiritual activity here. This guy goes into the temple. Oh, he wants something from the Lord in his future. And he's going to make this big commitment. Man, I'm going to do things for you, God. If you come through for me, look at what I'm going to give. And the temple messenger goes, wow, what a gift. And he records it down. And then he goes away and God does the thing. And then he comes back and he goes, okay, let, let's have a whole talk. Let's spend all this energy reasoning me out of actually fulfilling what we recorded down. And then he goes away. And then he comes back to the temple doing the same thing all over again. A lot of spiritual activity and nothing actually of substance. That's why we're told, we're reminded in 1 John 3.18... Let us not love with words and mere speech. Okay, there's a power in words, but there's also a lack of power in words at times as well. Mere speech, you know, let us not love with just breath, with just vapor, but with actions and in truth. If it's only a sentiment, it's negligent. If it's only something you intend to do and it never becomes anything else, it's negligent. If it isn't tried, it isn't true. If it isn't put into practice, it doesn't have any substance. That's why I'm personally really skeptical of anything involving Christianity and a lot of words. You put those two things together, and I just think sometimes bad things happen. Christianity and a lot of words. It could be through books. It could be through conferences, complicated theology, what have you. Consider what Jesus revealed to the religious institution of his day in Mark chapter 7. Turn to Mark 7 if you'd like. This is where we're going to land this morning. There's these religious institutions in his day, and they have a lot of meetings. They talk about a lot of stuff. They go really deep with theology and traditions and practices, and man, they are experts, and nobody hears and shares the words of God more than these religious leaders. So when Jesus trips up with his disciples, meaning, you know, he doesn't fulfill these ceremonial washings that they're supposed to do before eating. These chatty theological types know exactly where he's fallen short. And they're pointing it all out, right? We've had meetings about this. This is not the way you're supposed to go about your spirituality, Jesus. And they point it out to him. And then he responds. And man, Jesus is a counterpuncher. He is a strong counterpuncher, let me tell you. Verse 6. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. Great way to start a talk. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corbin that is devoted to God. That is, they've created this tradition where they can vow that those goods, that that wealth is actually reserved for God at some point in the future. Then now you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like that. Jesus says... You follow God, but your mouth is ahead of your heart. Your mouth is ahead. Your words are ahead of your actual life. Because look, this is amazing what they do. The power of the human mind and mouth to rationalize and reason its way out of following God. Here, there's the command of God given. 
and it's clear as day, and it doesn't take a degree to understand, honor your father and mother, and if you don't do it, die. Like, it's that clear, right? From God to them. But then they started talking and reasoning, and they said, well, wait a minute, we can create this additional command, and it's for God, but somehow living for God is keeping them from living for God. Right? Because they, they said, honor your father and mother, but let's create this way that we can make this vow and do this thing as very spiritual and set aside our wealth and our worth for God in the future, and now we can't utilize because that's for God. Somehow, they neglected the commands of God by creating new commands for God, talking themselves out of fulfilling His will and His actual purpose. And I do worry that the church of today has fallen into the same error of theologizing itself out of understanding God. I mean, if you look at our Christian history, how many 15-letter words can you come up with to describe the Bible? We have created so many 15-letter words in our theology, in our study of God, to describe things that Jesus put into plain language. He told common stories so that the common people of his day who were largely illiterate too could actually grasp the meaning. You know, what purpose does it serve for us to complicate something that Jesus made clear and simple except to serve our own interests? What if many of those who are considered the most brilliant minds of Christian history are really the captains of our greatest foolishness? I mean, it's always funny when someone says to me, man, I want deep theology. I want to talk deep theology. And I'm always like, yeah, and I want edible food. What are you trying to tell me? Like, like that's what makes food food. It's edible, and theology is deep. We're talking about knowing God, studying God, right? I mean, it, it is deep. It doesn't have to have a lot of words accompanying it for it to have meaning and substance. Didn't Jesus prove that point? So what you're really saying is you want more talk. And is that what Jesus wants for us? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Show me the parable. Show me the teaching of Jesus where he goes, you know what, guys, if you really want to correct this whole thing, if you want to get what you're missing, what you're really missing is more reasoning and more talk and more complicated ideas behind the things that I'm talking about. And if you do that, then you're really going to please me. On the other extreme, we also have this modern habit on the part of preachers to say something that can be cut down into a five-second quipped cliche for social media, you know, so they find a way to, like, pack in a sermon into five seconds, and maybe that's the answer we're looking for, less words, but then you go on Instagram, and you can view 20 of these messages in as many seconds. What's it all come to? 24-7, you know, sermons are playing in the airwaves, the invisible airwaves all around us right now. And there's enough content that you can stream online to last 10,000 lifetimes. And yet we have only one short breath of a life to actually live it, to actually put it into practice. The more words, the less meaning. The teacher says, stop talking and fulfill your vow. Let's just do this stuff. Let's just do this stuff already. I want to restate a couple things that have been said here as we close out our time. 
from Ecclesiastes 5, and I'm not going to add a lot of words to it because if I did, I wouldn't be following through on what I just shared. So I'm going to make it real simple. Clear teachings out of this chapter. Number one, go and listen. Sometimes church can be a bit of a religious circus, and the pastor becomes the ringleader of the circus. And it's my job to stand up here with the hoops. And I go, jump through this hoop. Now jump through this hoop. Now church, let's get together and make a lot of noise for God, right? And it can be a lot of activity and it can be a lot of froth. I mean, you, you go into some gatherings and say, how loud can we make it in here for God, you know? And the pastor's like, let's go, let's go, let's do this, right? And he's just the ringleader of the circus. You know, when I was studying this passage, I, I heard God cle clearly tell me, he's like, Andrew, I want you to be the principal shutter-upper. <laughs> and my wife isn't here this morning, but I think I just heard her say amen <laughs> from wherever she's at right now. You know, for the, the ratio of the amount of talking I do versus everyone else in this community, I really felt like God was saying, Andrew, you should be the principal listener as a model for what I'm really looking for among my people. Let's go to the concert. Let's make space to intentionally hear from God in reading and in prayer. Let's go to listen, to hear, and allow Him to lead the conversation. Number two, watch your words. I think that's a clear message from Ecclesiastes 5. The more words, the less meaning. We are as much what we say as what we don't say. Let's endeavor to play music with our mouth that is pleasant for people's ears. Let's not be people who are just satisfied with hearing our own voice. And lastly, fulfill your vows. If it's a sentiment, that's it. It's negligent. Let's be doers. We're not earning our salvation. I'm not saying we could do that. Only Jesus could do that. He lived the perfect life. He offered his life on the cross so that we have a means of grace and forgiveness, restored relationship with God. We can draw near to him. We can understand him in a familiar way. He's asking for us to be joined to him as part of his family, right? It's all those things. But at the same time, listen, pause, take in what he's saying. You know, it's one of our biggest mistakes to act like we've got nothing to do in response to what we hear, just because it's all been done, we say, on the cross. You know, one of the last things Jesus said in his earthly ministry is, I want you to teach the disciples to obey everything I have commanded you. If he didn't want things done, why would he say, teach them to obey what's been commanded? We can have a lot of religious activity, but never actually get to the point we obey what he's commanded. We could, we could sell millions of books on evangelism. We could host 100 conferences on evangelism, but that doesn't mean anyone's actually told anyone about Jesus. You know what I mean? And, and, and then we'd say, wow, look at all the money. Look at all the talk. Yeah, I bought the book. I want to buy the book for you. It's a gift for Christmas. Here we go. We've all read the book. We all came together. We cheered and celebrated the things that were in the book. But that doesn't mean anyone actually... Talk to anyone about Jesus. But there was all that activity. It's the same thing with our word. We could sing millions of worship songs and write millions of worship songs. But if there isn't worship emanating from our life and what we're doing with our actions, then we're honoring him with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. It's a lot of activity, but there is no substance. 
Hundreds and thousands of sermons on love, you can listen to them, but that doesn't mean automatically that anyone's put the interests of someone else above their own. We've got to fulfill our vows. I want to offer just a very simple prompt as we enter into a time of prayer and responding to what we see here in Ecclesiastes 5. The prompt is this, what message are you receiving from God this morning? So let's go before God in prayer to listen for what he would say to us. Would you join with me? Heavenly Father, we uh, live in your presence. Uh, The house of God is not a building anymore, it's your people. So we're aware that you're here, you're in the room. And that causes us to take stock, to just pause and consider for ourselves where we're at, how we're walking, what we're doing, our own lives. Lord, it causes us to open our ears to listen. What message are you are you speaking to us this morning through this chapter, Ecclesiastes 5? God, what would you want us to hear? Lord, maybe it is that we need to do a lot more listening. We need to make that space in our life where we go to the concert, where we're leaning in to absorb what you would say to us, and instead we find ourselves just filling our lives with a lot of chatter, a lot, a lot of chatter outside, a lot of chatter inside. The, the pond just constantly stirred up. We can't hear you. We can't hear ourselves. It's just chaos, Lord. Maybe you're telling us we need to, we need to stop. We need to say less. We need to listen more to your word, to what you would tell us. Or maybe that's just it for some of us this morning. You're telling us, man, we need to say less. We need to watch our words. More words doesn't always equal more worth. Sometimes it means less. And we have a power for the things that we say, but the things that we can also leave unsaid. Help us to steward that responsibility that you've given us, Lord. Maybe for some, you're calling us to fulfill our vows Maybe there's many things that we had this intent, we had this heart to do. Oh, we're going to reach out to our neighbors. And, and we make that vow and then it just never comes to pass. We just never reach out to our neighbors. Oh, you know, we've got this commitment I'm going to give. And then we never actually get to the point where we're giving. You know, we say, oh, I'm going to make space to listen in my life to you, Lord. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be present in the gathering of your people. I'm going to wake up early in the morning, and then it just never comes to pass, and it's just unfulfilled, and it's just activity. It's just vapor. It's just breath. Maybe you're speaking to us about those vows and commitments, that it's time to stop talking and just live it. Do it. I just want to invite you in these next few moments. Would you go before the Lord with this question? What message... Are you giving to me today, God?
Lord, I was prompted this morning just to remember that you're the pastor of this church, you're the pastor of the church, and you said, my house will be a house of prayer. That's what you desire for your people. It's not a physical building. We're the house as your church. And you, you want this house, you want this people to be marked by prayer, by those who go before you to absorb, to listen to what you would have to say. Would you form us in that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.